0: The show brought to you in part by our friends at naira we're continuing to cover naira racing throughout the year saturday racing coverage each week on the players podcast nick Tamaro, doing daily write-ups at inthemoneypodcast.com special stuff for carryovers like you saw last week as well you can find our info on the Naira Picks, Plays, and Promotions tab as well. And we want to help you find J.K. and the rest of the team when they are on America's Day at the races across the family of Fox Networks for a schedule with all the info. Go to InTheMoneyPodcast.com slash TV. welcome to a special edition of the in the money players podcast this is a bit of an extension of our annual degenerates gift giving guide show because i knew i wanted to talk about this book so much that it would really be its own show as opposed to a piece of the other show so luckily i convinced jennifer kelly the author of foxes of bel-air to stick around with me and chat about her book for a little bit and also give Listeners the opportunity to get a personalized signed copy and or potentially a gift set associated with the book. So now we welcome back after a very short absence to the (laughs) the airwaves, Jennifer Kelly. Jennifer, what's going on?
1: Hi, Pete. Not long time no (laughs) see.
0: Thank you for spending such a big chunk of time with me during a busy holiday week. But uh, this is long overdue. But I I wanted to save it for this because I thought it could maybe be where we could maximize. The amount of copies that we sell let's start at the very beginning of of foxes of bel-air and the origin the origin story of this book as it were when did you know this was a project that you were going to uh, get involved in and see through to the finish well
1: the nice thing about doing one book on a triple crown winner is it forces you to figure out how many other books about Triple Crown winners are out there because that's part of writing a book is doing a book proposal. And when I was working on Sir Barton, I had made a list of all the books available on Triple Crown winners, both currently for sale and ones that you could find secondhand, and discovered, of course, that no one had written about Gallant Fox in Omaha, which was very surprising considering how dominant Bel Air Stud was in the 1930s. And with all the hubris of someone who's already written one book, I decided (laughs) to do this one. So while I was promoting Sir Barton, I actually started writing this.
0: So you you, there was no it was pretty seamless in terms of your book writing experiences when you were when you were done promoting Sir Barton. And then, you know, halfway through this, was it did it feel like a positive, natural build up or did it feel like what have I gotten myself into?
1: A little bit of both. Um, The joy of this book is that I officially started writing it in January of 2020. And then about 10 weeks later, everything changed around me. And I had spent a week prior to the world shutting down for COVID at the Keeneland library doing a week's a week um, writer in resonance experience with them where I, I got 40 hours of, library time at the kina library and came away with a chunk of research that i needed and then literally two weeks after i got back my kids were home and being virtually educated my husband was home and working you know remotely and my house was suddenly full of people that i could not get rid of which made <laughs> it very challenging to try to write a book because you want to take care of your family you want to take care of your home and you want to make sure everybody's safe and you've got extended things out for and i'm in the middle of trying to write my book and balancing the freelance work that i started taking on so this book i will think of forever as my covid book where and i survived covid and the book writing process (laughs) at the same time i'm still standing this house is still standing the children are still here the husband is still here, and none of us are functional alcoholics. So this is like a victory. <laughs>
0: what changed about the book writing process, your process for writing this book because of COVID, other than having to fight tooth and nail to have the time? Did it change your like process at all?
1: It ha- It changed the process in that we were unable to access certain research locations so if you needed something from the kingland library there was a good six months or so where it was closed to the public so you couldn't just you know i live five hours from lexington so i couldn't just drive to lexington and spend time in the library i had to either do everything remotely which is email them with what i needed and then hope that they could scan it photocopy it whatever and mail it email it to me or mail it to me so there's that challenge, and there's also just the whole, I've got my children at home, I've got my husband at home, and, you know, we need to still make dinner. I still have people popping their head in, asking me for juice, asking me for a snack. <laughs> um, you, know, I, you know how I, that goes. But, I mean, most of the time, what I do, since I work, I live in Alabama, my work is pretty remote anyway, so I wasn't as challenged by this transition, other than the fact that there were some in-person you know, resources I just couldn't access because either the people weren't there because they had been sent home or because they were not allowed to have people in. So it just made it – I just had to be very purposeful about how I approached the research and how I acquired the research to make sure that I was accommodating for the state of the world at that moment but sure. still getting the work done.
0: Did you did, were things left out that would have been in the book or, or were you able to get everything? It was just a question of having to be that much more patient.
1: Oh, no, it was just being more patient. Because honestly, with a ninety five thousand word book here and you're covering two careers, it's already a you know, you're having to make lots of decisions about what you can spend time on and what you can't. And so as much as I would have loved to have done a more extensive discussion about the Great Depression and its effect on racing, because that becomes part of the conversation in this period between Gallup Fox and Omaha, I had to abbreviate that. But that was simply because I only had 95,000 words and I had to cover two careers. Plus talk about William Woodward and Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons. So really covid if anything, it just delayed your ability to do certain things. But because so much is digitized now, it's a lot easier to do this type of work since you can access most of it from home, either through a website or some other medium.
0: William Woodward, one of the central characters, maybe he is the central character, really, of the book, isn't somebody who I think everybody listening is going to know too much about. How can you put in perspective... Um, his contributions to the sport.
1: I think one of the things about William Woodford is that people just simply are not aware of exactly how influential he was over the sport during this era. He didn't just own two triple crown winners. He didn't just dominate the sport for that decade with Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons and all the great horses they produced, but he was also chairman of the jockey club. He was the one who kept the ship you know, going throughout the depression, keeping the sport on its toes, making sure that it's growing in a way that's, you know, functional while also still being a sport and trying to manage the ever-expanding number of states that were bringing in paramedical wagering, adding racetracks. And it's it's Woodward that's at the center of all this. He's the one behind the Grayson Jockey Club Foundation. So he was one of the people that's Part of that to help support research to benefit the horse he's the one that convinced england to open the, the general stud book to american horses right in the late 1940s which was a, a coup for him because it had been something that he had, had been a passion project during this era so when you look at the way the sport grew between 1930 and 1950 william woodward is one of those people that's Trying to help the sport, you know, weather this just massive expansion during a time when Americans are challenged not just by the Great Depression but by World War II.
0: Yeah. I mean, one frying pan into the, into the fire stuff there. And I I suppose I misspoke. People know the name Woodward. They just don't Mm -hmm. necessarily know William Woodward and why the Woodward that we have today, one of our, you know, most historic races has its connection to history. That's really interesting about the English connection. And I know that Mm -hmm. has to do with his political career as well, but like, Effectively, how big of a change was that? What, what what was going on before with American horses competing overseas and and, and, and how did it change things and, and open the door for the changing of the breed?
1: Well, his project to, you know, basically get rid of the Jersey Act in England and open that General Studbook dates back to the early nineteen tens when American racing was um, hampered by these movements to get rid of gambling. So you've got a lot of states that are losing racetracks because they're outlawing gambling, which basically puts the sport down to competing literally in Kentucky and Maryland, New York closed down for a couple of years. When all that started happening, people and horses started going to England and the English being the English didn't want American horses there because of horses like Lexington who had indeterminate, Pedigrees, owing to the fact that you know records were lost during time periods like the Civil War, and because forces like Lexington had questionable, um, you know, places in their pedigree, they did not want them intermixing with the English breeding. <laughs> so they would—they had a law. It's not a law so much as a policy that said horses with this certain criteria in their pedigree, like this many generations back are not allowed to be in the general stud book. And this was in place for about 35 years. And finally, in the late forties, they repealed it partly because of Woodward's advocacy for American horses, because he had been racing in England for, you know, two decades at that point, but also because the English were finding themselves bereft of quality blood stock and they really needed an infusion after the war of new blood and so by opening up the general stud book it did encourage people to you know bring american bred horses to england and ireland and leave them there and let them you know become part of the breed but it was it was woodward who who you know worked on this because he had spent so many years in england and had invested in english racing had an english stable had horses in Ireland that he was breeding, and he was, he and Marshall Field and a few other Americans were trying very hard to have the English become more open to Americans being a part of the sport over there.
0: Let's talk about Woodward and what he was doing domestically in terms of his racing operation, uh, specifically Bel Air Stud.
1: Yeah, Bel Air Stud, you know, William Woodward's initial. An in interest in racing was when he was a child. His father took him to Jerome Park, which of course is no longer there. They, he saw an early running of the Belmont Stakes as an 11-year-old somewhere in there. And then he decided one day after hearing his father talking about the last horse, the American horse, win the Epsom Derby was Iroquois in the late 19th century. He said, "I'm going to open. I'm going to own a Epsom Derby winner." And so as he grew up, he started learning more and more about the sport, about breeding. He was a a young man who went to Groton, and he and some friends at Groton were interested in racing. And then, you know, when he came over to England in 1903 as the uh, assistant to uh, the ambassador to the United Kingdom, Joseph Choate, he started going to the races and happened to be going to the races with the king of all people. (laughs) So it really grew his you know interest in the sport that way. When he came back to the United States, he used his resources that he already had. And this was not even before he didn't, this was before he even got in Bel Air Stud. He started using his resources to find a stallion, buy some mares, and start breeding for himself. When his uncle passes away and leaves him the estate Bel Air, Woodward starts building it as his own nursery, he brings in a couple of stallions, has some mares there, and starts developing his own breeding program. And he didn't even race until 1923 in his own colors, but for a decade or more before that, he was already breeding thoroughbreds and leasing them to people or selling them at Saratoga. So Woodward's involvement in the sport is far earlier than when you start seeing the Air Stud silks appear on the racetrack. He's been in it for several decades at that point, and it's all because he had this land and these resources that was left to him, and he grew it from there. But he did leave, he did move his actual breeding operation from Maryland in Bel Air Stud To Claiborne Farm because he found it too unwieldy to keep mares and keep stallions on the property at Bel Air and moved everything to Claiborne and then would bring the weanlings to Bel Air and go through them and decide who he was going to sell and who he was going to race and who he was going to take to England. And so the horses like Omaha rehabbed at Bel Air. So there was he had a lot of, you know, fingers in different pots. How, what was,
0: was the connection history. between Woodward and, and Claiborne? Like, how did that, how did that happen? It's kind of interesting to think about the connection between, you know, two of the, I mean, those are two of the dynasties of the 20th century. How did they get together?
1: They were friends because Clay, uh, Hancock, Arthur Hancock had bought a horse that William Woodward was interested in. And so he re- wrote a letter, and then I think eventually he either bought the horse from Hancock or they bonded over breeding. Right. And so it was from Claiborne slash Ellerslie because Hancock was maintaining both at this time that Woodward bought the mare Marguerite as a yearling. She was by a Claiborne Sally and out of a, a mare that Arthur Hancock had bought. So he bought. His best mare at at that point in his career, Marguerite, from Claiborne Farm. And then when she was done racing and he wanted to breed her, he bred her to stallions at Claiborne Farm because he had been the one that had partnered with Hancock to bring over stallions like Sir Galahad III for breeding in the United States.
0: Do you know where the idea came from? Why? I mean, given how important he ended up being, why? What was special about Sir Galahad? Why did they have their their eyes on importing him?
1: Well, they wanted a new stallion to bring over that had European blood. There one of the stallions in his pedigree was Teddy, who had been influential in England and in Europe in general. And they wanted that blood here in the United States and. Ironically, for 125,000, uh, Sir Galahad III was actually in the price range <laughs> for them, and they went to his owner, who was an American that happened to have a, a farm in France and raised primarily in Europe, and bought the bought the stallion from him. But it was had to be a partnership because Hancock did not have the money to to afford 125,000 by himself, so he partnered with Linward with Marshall Field III with Robert Fairbairn to bring Sir Galahad over and infuse Claiborne with an, a European blood, European bloodstock, so that they had another gene set of genes to work with in the United States. And Sir Galahad was a very successful stallion for Claiborne and then was the model for how they made other stallion purchases down the line
0: great i mean there's so much interesting stuff that resonates me with throughout what i and my knowledge of history of this business is certainly nothing compared to yours but the idea of the powerful people partnering to get the 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 stallion deal done that certainly resonates throughout and you know before when you were talking about and and this could just be coincidence but i couldn't help think of the the japanese approach to to Mm -hmm. bloodstock when you were talking about having like 10 years before racing in 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 his own colors not that that's literally what happened with Japan but you look about how Japan has like transformed the way the world thinks about the breeding industry with them yeah. becoming so much more prominent than ever and you just think about what a process that was that's not something that happened overnight that has to do with you know bu- buying the right stallions and, and mares over a period dating back like 30 years so it's just it's just interesting to see and I think it's a lesson, maybe a little bit, not to get preachy, but in a business where everybody's so interested in what's the next, you know, how quickly can we get a return on our investment? Oh, this sire doesn't have a lot of winners in their first crop. They must not be good. Let's, let's ship them out. You know, That kind of thinking that we see so much of now, it's almost antithetical to these ideas of, you know, this stuff, This it takes time to transform a breed, I guess is what I'm trying to say in a nutshell.
1: But it does. And this is an era where they have the luxury of time because they're not, it's not the same approach to breeding as you see, you know, almost a century later. It's less commercial and more geared toward
0: breeding to race,
1: breeding to race rather than necessarily the racing to breed. And, you know, William Woodward was not afraid to sell mares or when he needed to, he didn't keep all of the stallions that he created. So he didn't keep Omaha, he didn't keep Granville. Some of his horses that had won classic races for him did not stay as stallions. He would, you know, make deals to lease them to other farms. You know, I think Granville stood in Maryland for a while and then was moved to Canada. Um, Omaha, stood at Claiborne, and then went to upstate New York to stand for the jockey club, and then ended up out in Nebraska. So William Woodward was very purposeful about how he approached his breeding and, you know, wanted horses that he could race and did not race his two-year-olds as hard as some others might, preferring to save them for the three-year-old races and beyond when they've matured and had had gotten an education and you know, and we prepared for the racetrack. So you can look at Gallant Fox, who raced, you know, a few times, which is maybe more than some now. But I mean, he could have raced a lot more at two. But they stopped on him in September and didn't start him again until April.
0: Because- Very rare had- then, right? I mean, because we're not talking about an era where, like, maybe somebody with a modern perspective hears that and says, "Oh, that makes sense because the Triple Crown's so important." But the Triple Crown wasn't so important in. 1930, right? I mean, you bring give me the perspective of what like for, for the what would the normal like what took the place of the Derby as the central race that far back a hundred years ago or, or was there no equivalent?
1: Well the Derby was the Derby. It wasn't necessarily the massive tourist you know event that we we have known it as and the Triple Crown didn't have that cachet necessarily that we are familiar with but this is really the genesis of it this is where all these races become more consequential so you do have over from 1919 to 1930 the purses for these three stakes races specifically go up in value from you know 20 25,000 in 1919 to 75,000 by 1930 so over 10 years Because these stakes races are the ones that people start targeting because they are such high value purses, then they start standing head and shoulders above the other ones, even ones like the Withers or the Dwyer or the Latonia Derby and ones that people had traditionally didn't necessarily follow the Triple Crown path, but wanted the spring stakes and they wouldn't immediately have thought, oh, I'm going to go to Pimlico and New York are. I'm going to start derby and go here. Like, you know, everyone had different approaches, but as the purses go up and as the competition between the races heats up, you see more and more people trotting that path of what Sir Barton did, which is derby. And then there was some. Uh, fuss about the scheduling for preakness which is the one that's moved the most often in terms of schedule and then belmont and then by 1930 when gallant fox wins the triple crown it has it is the triple crown it's just not called that as often but as early as 1923 those three races were referred to as the triple crown but it didn't start coming into this the usage that we're familiar with today at, you know, as often <laughs> until you get to 1930. And then by 1935, it settled into, this is the Triple Crown. This is what we're referring to. This is a thing that people do.
0: A thing and largely was- because of these two horses,
1: right? It, it was Sir Barton. I always say that Sir Barton planted the seed, and then Gallant Fox in Omaha ran with it. Right. So <laughs> but because of William Woodward, because he was targeting... You know the classic races. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, Gallant Fox's resume for 1930, it's the Dwyer and the Arlington Classic and the Travers and the Lawrence Realization and the Jackie Club Gold Cup. I mean, he didn't shy away. His first start of the year was the Wood Memorial, right. and then the, I mean, get he was not afraid to run, race that horse and race him in the biggest stakes. So to him, it was a natural progression that you would go to Derby and you would go to the Freakness. And you would, of course, go to Belmont because he was primarily invested in New York Racing. And even in the memoir that he wrote about Mallet Fox's career, he says, this is called the Triple Crown. I mean, and that's like 1931. And he, of all people, had already recognized that this was a thing
0: with the understanding that you already wrote an entire book about this, maybe a book plus, <laughs> why is it though of all the races it could have been, why was it those three that had those, the, the purses increased and, and why did they end up the three that were, that were the most important?
1: Because there are a lot of egos involved in racing. And these people, and as now, <laughs> the, these were the people who, who wanted their races to be the go-to. Matt Wynn, of course, is behind Derby and growing Derby. But the people in Baltimore behind the Maryland Jockey Club and Freakness wanted the Freakness to grow and have the stature that rivaled the Derby. And this was because of a man named William P. Riggs and other people in Maryland. They were determined to keep up with Derby. And so they started having this arms race in terms of purse. Increases so if Derby would increase it, the Freakness people would go behind it and, and you know and they compete for start dates and all this. And it's just it's wild to read it because it's so settled in place now. But in the 1920s, it was like the wild, wild west of scheduling and how we're gonna have these two races spaced and when they go right, it's just it's crazy. And then Belmont, of course, New York doesn't want to be left out, and for them, the Belmont Stakes was you know the crown jewel of the springtime races because all the other races that I've talked about, the Lawrence realization, the Jackie love gold cup, the Travers state. So they're all second half of the year. Yeah. So for Belmont for New York, Belmont was the race they wanted people to come to. It was like, it was early June. It was close to the other two. So they capitalized on the attention and, you know, for a variety of reasons, which my next book will be about. These are the three races that emerged as the ones that people decided: if you win these three, this is an accomplishment that is befitting this kind of um, stature.
0: We've talked a lot about the historical underpinnings of the book because, of course, people know I'm fascinated by this stuff and the breeding stuff specifically. But make no mistake: this book is not a uh, this book is not a recitation of, of, of facts by any means. There's a lot of like thrilling racing sequences in here and that leads me to my next question which is one that i hinted at on the gift giving guide when we talked about your writing style which you know i'm a big fan of where i just i like the way that you walk the line between <laughs> writing history and imbuing narrative without crossing that line where it makes it you know it's there's a line between what what you do which i would call narrative nonfiction, and then obviously some places and even some well-known narrative nonfiction writers, for me, do cross over the line into where it's, yes, it's narrative nonfiction, but you're also getting into a little bit of historical fiction category mm-hmm. where, you know, famous and wonderful writers will put thoughts in people's heads that I just don't think, no matter how many backup sources you can have, you can quite get to that level of detail. I wanted to ask you about how, how your style evolved and, you know, what, what you're comfortable with in terms of creating a dramatic scene and, and where you think the line is where, where it's going too far and you'd rather just rely on what's in the historical record?
1: I will not put something in a book that I don't have substantiation for. So I know how the Ascot Gold, because the book opens, the prologue is the Ascot Gold Cup, the 1936 Ascot Gold Cup between Quash and Omaha. And that is my imagining of how that race went you know, putting myself in their shoes, but that is informed by countless articles about that day, newsreels, and other source material that backs up what that day was like, and being a racing fan and having been a racing fan since I was 10, you know, I've been to the racetrack, I've been to the derby, I've been to the Freakness, I have seen my share of races and lived with other people's recounting of how races went and it i want to i want to be in the moment so i do the best i can to not just put myself in the moment but put the people reading what i'm i'm doing in the moment too so i want you to feel like you know what the day looks like was it sunny what was the the condition of the racetrack you know what was the feeling around the racetrack you know how ask it 150,000 people shoehorned into ask it (laughs) if you've been to derby you can imagine that scene you know you've seen horses act up in in the post parade if you've been to a racetrack or watched it on tv you're familiar with all these scenes and all i'm doing is pulling in details from source material to color it all so that when you leave that scene you feel like you understand what that day was
0: and not and make anything up. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, great. I, yeah, I, I, I love it. I think this book is so well written. I think your style in general, I mean, it, it's history that reads like a novel in many ways, you know, and, and I mean that in, in the entirely complimentary sense of, of what I'm saying, but I just want people to understand, like, what level of fun they're going to have reading well, you don't have to be the level of history geek that you and I are to, yeah. to enjoy the stories and the and the way this book unfolds. All, all you have to do is be a racing fan, I would say.
1: I genuinely appreciate that because that is exactly what I'm going for is to imbue the passion that I feel for the sport. And that, I think, brings people to the sport in, in the first place. Like you have a passion for the competition and for the animals at the center of it. There's something you know, very statuesque and just amazing about what they, how they put everything out there. Pretty much every time they run, and you can't help but be thrilled by that. Whether you're watching a claiming race at Saratoga on like a Wednesday, <laughs> or you're at the yeah. Kentucky Derby and your 20, 20 horses or the cavalry charge is going by you. I mean, you can't, you see that and you feel that. And then I want the riding that I do to. Reflect that because that's what the sport has given me. So if I can give that back to people who love the sport as much as I do, I will do my best.
0: Very, very well put. You've you've succeeded in spades, and there's more to tell. And you know, here's a I have a couple of personal writing questions, a couple more personal writing questions for you. So you mentioned about the the, the germ of the idea and mm-hmm. you know looking for basically gaps in the so, in the narrative it, slash like historical history. record here. But from reading the book, it seems to me that it's 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 pretty clear that you connected with a particular element of this story on a level much more than, oh, somebody needs to write a book about this. What what personally motivated you to want to tell this story? in the, the quality and the level of detail that you did.
1: I I love these horses. I love the Triple Crown. It's what I cut my teeth on. Growing up in Alabama, there was a racetrack. It didn't last very long. So when I wanted to watch racing, it was primarily going to be Wide World of Sports with Jim McKay. And it was oh, gonna boy. be those days. It was gonna be the pre some of the prep races sure but then I would have the VCR set and record the Derby and record the Preakness, and record the Belmont. And, you know, as a kid, would sh- shove everybody out of the room and put myself in front of the TV and watch it. And the Triple Crown is what made me fall in love with the sport. It was Winning Colors and Sunday Silence, the Easy Goer, which, you know, is a story that I absolutely go gaga over. <laughs> and it's like, you can't beat watching Sunday silence and easy goer go at it at derby and then again at preakness and then at belmont and just that that you know hearkening back to affirmed and alidar and on and on and on to me that's the best that racing is can be is those days so why not write about those days because when you get someone into the sport you're gonna start them with the big day because that's what they're going to see on tv and then once we pulled them in with something like that, you know, the beauty of Derby Day and the the fun of Freakness Day and then the potential behind Belmont Day, once we've drawn them in with these stories, and then hopefully they're in it for life. So start with the big ones, the names that people know like Secretariat, and then, you know, once you got them, let's hook them with some other stories too. <laughs>
0: I love it. Who would you describe as influences in terms of your of your writing style? Where did you sort of learn to do what you do?
1: Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. I think you're the first person that's ever asked me that. Um, I'm surprised. I know I I grew up in Alabama. I read a lot as a kid. I mean, I a lot. And I remember just inhaling the Black Stallion series. And so, of course, Walter Farley is probably the first real storyteller about racing that I knew. And then I have a literature background. So I have read a lot of literature for both my master's and my bachelor's. And then I have a technical communication background. So one of the nice things about that type of writing, workplace writing, is you're forced to write in a way that you don't necessarily do as an academic. You're writing for practical reasons to communicate with people. And so when you're asked to communicate with people in a different way, then it changes how you approach other types of writing. And then when it comes to writers that I admire, you know, I, I want to be as good as someone like Dorothy Ars or Jamie Nicholson or, you know, any of the other people that are currently writing. You know, I want to aspire to have someone, you know, want to, you know, keep reading yeah. and keep coming back and, and talk to me about writing because it's, it's been the thing, I, I spent 12 years in the classroom teaching other people writing and I, I think I've pulled in a lot of influences from instructors that I've had from actually having to teach people myself and then, of course, the many books about racing I've read and, you know, Walter Farley. Like, thank goodness for Walter Farley. I don't think I'd be here.
0: <laughs> That's a great one. Um, when, you were, when you were studying literature, who were, did you have like a thesis or did you have a, a particular writer you were most uh, oh. interested in?
1: That's a good question. My ultimate goal would have been to get a degree. Well, my focus is primarily 20th century novel or 20th century drama as in stage dramas. Right. Cool. So I was always a big fan of like Toni Morrison and Octavia Butler and people like that. My master's degree uh, paper was on wit, which is a play in, and Beloved by Toni Morrison, and The Reader by Bernard Schlink, which are all very happy things that have a lot of trauma in them. (laughs) It is wonderful to spend six months with. And it was all just focused around good storytelling Mm -hmm. and then connecting people with experiences that are universal to all of us, but then having them connect to you in a way that is personal but also you're getting insight into exactly what's going on in that person's life. And that's, that. I hope I bring that into the books. Yes. I, I was going to be, say,
0: this is sounding familiar.
1: Because <laughs> I just love any, I want to empathize with people. I want to learn about them. I want to understand why they feel what they feel and then I want to feel it in a way, in the best way I can and then have that Become so when I'm thinking about William Woodward, who had all the resources at his fingertips you know, a, an estate, plenty of money and it, he could have chosen anything to do with his time and his money. And he chose horse racing. And like, I want to get into the mind of someone who makes that choice and what motivated him. <laughs> and that's what I tried to do. And same with the sunny Jim Fitzsimmons, he could have done anything with his life and he chose to be a horse trainer for 70-something years. Like, what is what what went into that? What drew him to that and kept him in it? That's what I want to find
0: out. He's an interesting one, too, because, you know, Sonny, that's a character that I think people, more than Woodward, seem to have, like, a little bit more of a sense of from, you know, the other racing histories where, where he's appeared. How did you find Fitzsimmons as a, as a character to reckon with?
1: Oh, he was... The problem with Fitzsimmons was... The Jimmy Breslin book is great, and if you can find a copy of it, which is going to be second hand, it's really hard to find. Breslin did a really nice like autobiography of him, and did lots of interviews with him. And there's so much out there about Cindy Jim Fitzsimmons, and it's taking all of that and wrangling it into something more succinct, so that you're doing him justice, yeah, while also telling a story. You know, and I've met since then multiple of his relatives and you yeah, I wish I could have worked with them on telling his stories. But the problem with, you know, talking sometimes to family members is that they're giving you a story that's been handed down to them second hand, third hand. And so you're getting what you think is a, a true story or has truth behind it, but then the specifics are lost with time
0: into urban legend
1: territory yeah and so my job as a historian is to sort through that kind of thing and to find what actually happened which is why you don't see the supposed gallant fox got left at the start of the tremont or whatever race it was because he was watching an airplane like that appears in the william h.p robertson history of thoroughbred racing in america and while it's a wonderful anecdote, and I don't doubt that something like that would have distracted Gallup Fox, it couldn't find substantiation for it beyond what Robertson wrote. And I believe me, I, I tried. And so that's what happens with people like Woodward and Fitzsimmons is that you have to sift through what has become the story through retelling. And then get the veracity, or as close to the the actual veracity as possible, so that you can put it down in the record without it being an error. But, just the, the goal is to not introduce errors into the record.
0: The Hippocratic Oath of the Historian.
1: <laughs> first, well, I mean, first no why, errors. That's why people kept saying that Sir Barton was the rabbit for his stablemate Billy Kelly. He wasn't. Right. He was entered into the race in, you know, close to the best. Sure, but H.P. Bedwell thought that Sir Martin had a better chance in the Derby than Billy Kelly did. But the going narrative over you know the last hundred years was that Sir Martin was a, a rabbit for a weight. No, it, <laughs> it, it was it was not quite that. So right. that's my It'd job. It look
0: that way, but it was not. That's not the reality of it. And just because something looks one way or people tell it one way, I yeah. mean, it's funny. It's the difference between you know, it makes me think of handicapping and the difference between narratives and facts and handicapping, and, you know, around here we like to stick to the, You think you have a bit better bankroll when you stick to the facts. I think in, in a roundabout sort of way the same is true from a historian's perspective.
1: Yes, I am just, all I can do is take the information I'm given, try to find, you know, trends or, or truths or details that have either been slopped off the time and present them in a way that is as truthful as i could possibly get it so that when someone picks this book up 50 years from now and i'm no longer here they're getting as close to the truth as i could get
0: you're good for at least another 50 first of all but second of all um i get it and i, I think it's a great it's a great perspective and i think it i i love how seriously you take it and i i wish uh people who, who did journalism and, and wrote history and other endeavors held themselves to as, as high a standards as you do in terms of being accepting that there is such a thing as truth, objective truth, and, and doing your best to point that out in a, in a world that is far too subjective for my liking. I, I, I really appreciate your, your approach to literature. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, Jennifer, and we haven't gotten to the real reason you're here, and that's to tell people how they can buy the book and not only that but uh i really liked it i know they're not quite ready yet but i like what you were telling me off air about these gift packages that i also think could be fantastic for our listeners shall we start with the 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 signed books that we talked about on the other show
1: sure uh this my signed copies are handled by a wonderful bookseller named lady smith her store is called the snail on the wall and i know you're going to link to it in the show notes she handles, if you place an order with her, she will, you can leave a note in there about how you want the book signed, and she will be the one that handles the money part and the shipping part, and I will handle the signing part, and um, she's wonderful. She's local to me, and I do everything I can to support local businesses, whether I'm here in my hometown or in Lexington or Saratoga or wherever I am. And then if you want to just order a copy of the book, <laughs> you can go through the
0: for his website too right well in the money slash foxes is the link to get the personalized signed copy there are other places you can find the book i recommend it's so special when you have a signed book on your shelf you feel a connection to it throughout your life that's just not there when it's a book you bought from your local bookseller or even um even you know a uh, the, the, some big chain place. So the, you can get the book from any of those, but we recommend in com yeah. slash foxes. Tell us about the gift sets. Well, I don't I think, think they're quite the available now, but uh, give us the scoop.
1: They're coming after Thanksgiving. I hope to have all the info available for everyone. So this year, because I love the idea of doing a gift set, and I think if someone offers something like this to me, I would definitely take them up on it. I'm doing three in three, three uh, gift boxes at the premier level and then three gift boxes at the special level. Each will have a signed copy of the book and then some other really cool Bel Air specific items. So if you have someone in your family that loves Gallant Fox in Omaha or is from Maryland and wants to support Maryland racing, these are items that you will not find. Everywhere, and I have collated them into these two gift boxes, special for the holidays. I'll have three of one and three of the other. And as soon as I get all my ducks in a row, you will be hearing about it on social media, along with links to order. And then, if you miss if you miss out on the gift boxes, but you still want to get uh, copies of the books, I'll have some other incentives for the holidays.
0: Great, will um, and that's. We'll spread that info around, but basically if they follow you on if they're Twitter people
1: yeah.
0: um at the Sir Barton. Right. What what else is it? Fox is I imagine the info will be there. I'm just trying yeah. to think of, you know, making sure people can find this uh, this info and it doesn't sound like you'll have too long to wait if you're interested in that but yeah. the, are those the, the two biggies and, and again i'll pa- pass along info when you have a specific link maybe i'll even make another uh, pretty link we used we did the foxes one but we could use the the, the kelly uh, pretty link at some point to, to link directly to this because i have a feeling we're going to know some people who are going to be interested in this stuff
1: i hope so i've had a lot of fun collecting all these items and and hopefully creating something that's really pretty and will make a lovely gift under your tree this year if you are a racing fan or a gallant fox and omaha fan they should be lots of fun opportunities for gift giving this holiday season i really wanted to make the end of 2023 and the end of the year of the foxes a special one so i'm working on getting these done so that everyone can take advantage of it
0: all right, be on the lookout, people. We'll get it sorted out for you. Jennifer, can't wait to have you back on soon. Don't know if we have another trivia show in no. the uh, in the offing potentially. We we do need a re- we do need a, a, a rubber match between uh, the teams. Uh, you, you and Emily and and Jessica and, and Nick have each won one, so we might have to set that up at some point. But in any case, always a pleasure seeing you at, at racetracks around yeah. the world. Oh, one other question for you: Have yeah. you been to ask it
1: yourself yet? I've not been to ask It. It's on my list. But I gotta get you
0: there. Well, let me know I, if I can I, help. I, I know a couple people over there.
1: If you could fold me up in a suitcase and carry me to that way, it would be a heck of a lot easier. Uh, husband and I really would like to go to Ask It because we know Wimbledon is Yeah, you can do the double. I've done it
0: I've done it the last two years. I don't know how the dates line up this year. I haven't looked I, yet.
1: It's but, on our bucket list because both of us are avid tennis players and avid tennis fans. And so the goal is to go to Ascot one year and then hopefully when when the dates with Wimbledon line up so that we can knock them both out. Because yeah. it's, it's I would love to go in 2036 for the 100th anniversary of Omaha, but that's a long way away. And I don't think Historians I can. plan ahead,
0: people. This is what, <laughs> this should be one of your takeaways from the show. Working on the 2036 vacation already is just. <laughs>
1: one day I will get there and I will be decked out properly and it will
0: be good. Awesome. Well, let me know if I can help. Um, oh, yeah. I'm not so good at helping with the travel. I might be able to help get you into one of
1: these places. Let's see.
0: <laughs> We'll see how it goes. Um, we'll see if I stay in good standing, and hopefully we won't have to wait. Hopefully, twenty thirty six can yeah. be your like tenth anniversary of going or something.
1: Well, we'll That's see. Probably. It's it's on my bucket list, and I've been to England multiple times, so I, I yeah I know what I'm getting into. I just need to get to that part of England.
0: <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's it's. I can't I can't recommend either enough. I mean Wimbledon is a really special sporting experience, and obviously, Ascot is incomparable. So. We'll hopefully you'll get there before too long. In any case, appreciate you spending basically your entire afternoon here with me and uh, on these two shows very much appreciate all of your input. We'll send folks to check out the gift giving guide, the book guide boxes of com is the place to go again, order the book to be signed in the money com slash Foxes. You can have that personalized. Can't think of a better gift for the racing nut in your life. Uh, any final thoughts, Jennifer, or shall we just send it
1: home? Oh, no. Happy holidays, everybody. And thank you, Pete, for being not just a great supporter of the sport, but a great supporter of of racing authors like myself, because you are invaluable in the way you promote and are, how enthusiastic you are about the work we do. So thank you so much.
0: Flattery will get you everywhere, Jennifer. Thank <laughs> you so much. No, you know I love it as a guy who spent – much of his career in book publishing. This is like the perfect uh, Venn diagram of my interests, and I, I look forward to having you on again very soon for another discussion. And hey, maybe someday that that book club idea of yours from a couple of years ago was a pretty good one too. We might have to we might have to get that going at some point as well. Uh, I think there's enough of us out there to to support something like that, Jennifer. I met John-
1: I met John Sheriffs, and I know John would be more than happy to talk racing books with us if you would awesome. like to do that.
0: <laughs> that might have to be a special this winter. All right, we'll talk. We'll leave that production meeting for outside the show. Okay,
1: feel okay. Thanks
0: again one more time. And thanks, everybody, for listening, for making these shows so much fun to do. Until next time, I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May you win all your photos. remind folks about the rtip conference coming up december 4th through 6th out in tucson arizona this is going to be one of the events of the year for people in the industry some great panels and they're on the cutting edge of what's going on here talking about caws with one of the top caw players No, usually a pretty secretive bunch don johnson going to be on one of the panels. That's going to be great. Looking at category one rules topic that I know is of great interest to people as well. It's also just an amazing networking event. We're going to eat some tacos. We're going to have some fun. Come join us in com slash RTIP.